go. This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Coming to you today with not only the audio, but the video. Somewhat <laughs> of an experiment. And I also want to mention, I want to thank the folks out there that have helped us keep on the air. Uh, we are a, uh, not a nonprofit, but we are not working for profit. We have not monetized this podcast, but, and we want to keep it free and available to people. So if you go to our website, spiritmatterstalk.com, there's a red button you can hit and uh, you can uh, help support us. It is not a, non-tax, uh, a tax-deductible uh, a donation because we are not a nonprofit, uh, but uh, you would be contributing to keep us on the air free. And we want everybody to listen. Our guest today is Bruce McGraw. Uh, uh, he has a very interesting perspective on climate change and uh, how and why human beings are functioning the way they are now. His upcoming book, The Magical Universe, Answering the Call of Climate Change for Personal and Global Transformation. Bruce, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Okay, well, thanks for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Bruce, um, you're uh, in San Diego, you're, uh, you teach. Uh, give us a little background about your own uh, spiritual uh, journey and what brought you to the study of the uh, world's religions and um, everything you're doing now. Okay. Um, I guess, you know, if I were to tell my own story, I'd have to start out with... Um, Kind of growing up in my house, uh, my father was a big influence on me, both positively and negatively. Um, he actually he worked for the NSA, National Security Agency. Initially, when he started out, he seemed to really like it, but he gradually really soured on it. So he got to hate the job. And um, because he hated it, it created quite a volatile environment in the house. So everything was always a little edgy around there. Um, fast forward, uh, in, uh, in the mid sixties, date myself a little here. I was like 13, 14, 15 years old. And, uh, we got, he was stationed in Okinawa. So we moved to Okinawa. And the bad thing about that was that all his friends who, uh, that he used to, that he worked with, uh, were all together, you know, on the base housing. So before when they were working before they were spread out, but now that they're on the base housing, they get together all the time. And get drunk and then complain about their jobs all the time. Like I, you know, I hate this job. I hate my bosses. Uh-huh. On and on and on. It was just, it was terrible. And I, you know, I witnessed these people do this all the time. You know, and one time I, I said, well, if you hate it so much, you know, why don't you just quit your job? And they said, well, we can't. We got these bills and we got this and we got that. We can't. We can't do it. And so fast forward. Now I was a, a junior in Virginia Tech. Um, and I enjoyed my college career and I was coming to the end of it. I was getting tired of, uh, of school and the university. And I kind of, I looked at, I looked, and I was ready to, to get out of the school, but I realized, you know, I had my senior year left and I was going to go out in this world and this world looked, you know, I, I don't know what they told me stuck in my head and I couldn't really see any other alternative and looked like, wow, I'm going to move into this terrible world. And I have to say, parenthetically, you know, I'd, I worked on the Nixon-McGovern campaign, and I had worked for McGovern, and I was in Blacksburg working for them, and, um, and, uh, and, and I was working the poll night, and as we were finishing up the poll night, I was looking forward to go home and watch the uh, returns. Before I even got out of the building, somebody came over and said, you know what, Nixon, they already declared Nixon won. 
And I was like, oh my God. And, you know, it just kind of added to my depression. To me, that was an election between good and evil and the evil one. And, you know, it just looked like everything was going down a hill and I was going to go out in this world that was a mess. It looked like anything I could do. So I went into this pretty deep depression um, when I was in college. And, um, and you know, one of the things that I, that I was doing at the, in the meantime was I took this course on Russian history from uh, this professor I was thinking about, what was his name? I think his name was Wyszynski, and he was the best lecturer on Russian history. And before he wanted to talk about the uh, Russian Revolution, he gave us like a two or three month little symposium on the history of socialism. And the thing that caught my eye about that was he got into Hegel and he got into Marx. And the big thing about those two, especially Hegel initially, was he showed that history and, and consciousness and whatnot were evolving in these stages. And I thought, wow, that is so interesting that history, and I never, it never dawned on me. I thought it was just this static thing that was always just this horrible thing. And just the intellectually just thinking that, you know, it wasn't like this, it isn't always gonna be like this. I don't know, it, it just, it got into my head a little bit. So anyway, I was depressed. I wasn't doing much for a few weeks and, um, and I had rented an apartment with a couple of friends off campus and they were out doing things all the time and I wasn't anymore. And then one of them came home early, I don't know, noon or something, I guess. I'm not noon, midnight, which was early at that time. And you know, he sat down, I think I was watching TV or something. And um, you know, he talked a little about what's going on with you, and I was explaining, you know, some of this stuff. And I got into talking about what I was learning in this thing about Hegel and Marx and this flow of history. Well, he was a mechanical engineer, and um, he, uh, you know, he studied the physical sciences and physics and everything. And I started telling him certain things. This was a while ago, so I don't remember exactly what I was telling him. But he would say, "Oh, you know, that's really interesting." We talked about this in the physics class, and then we're sort of connecting up. And then he added something and I went, well, that's really interesting because, you know, when we look at this, we're like this. So we kept bouncing back and forth these connections, but really from kind of my social sciences to his more physical sciences. And he said something and I don't know, my head like detonated. It just exploded. You know, I had this like full blown on, I think mystical, visionary, whatever you want to call it. And it just all came together. And it was such a big thing that it just took my depression and just threw it right out. I mean, it was just gone. And it was interesting because when I was thinking about it intellectually, you know, the depression was still there. I couldn't, I couldn't get rid of it. But that just kind of blew it out of me. And it just really kind of changed my whole life uh, after I had that, that realization. And so I still, then I, I don't know, for some reason, it just freed me up. And I felt like, you know, we live in this dynamic world. It's not static. And um, it changed my whole perspective. So when I got out of school, I decided, you know, I need more life experience. So I ended up joining the Peace Corps. I went overseas for two years. I taught in Thailand. And, um, and it really helps to get out of the country. Everybody says, you know, you leave the country, you can really see your country from an objective view. You can't really see it unless you leave it. So I, that was a big help. And then after I was finished my teaching, and I used to travel around during the breaks to different countries, I spent six months in India before I had to come back. And uh, when I came back, uh, I stayed at home for three or four months to kind of re, re I went kind of read my culture shock and everything, culture, culture, shock. culture shock and everything. It took a while. It took almost a year to overcome that. But after three or four months, I was feeling a little more comfortable. And I came out to California. And just to kind of make this shorter, um, I ended up in San Diego after a while and decided to go study uh, 
I got a mat. I went to get a master's at UCSD in philosophy. And um, so I got that. And then I started teaching a while later. And I don't know, studying the philosophy, I mean, evolution was the big thing and still is in my mind. That's pretty much what my, my book is, is about. But studying philosophy made me think of the, the whole history. I mean, I could see the history of Western thought, especially from the modern era. If you take it from like Descartes to, to Locke, to Barclay, to Hume, to Kant, to Hegel, to Kierkegaard, the existentialist, and then into what you know, I'm trying to get into my book is integrative philosophy. I mean, you could see this pattern, this evolution going, which I found was really interesting. The other thing, as I was teaching this and religious studies and whatnot, is I became much more aware of like, I don't know, I just call it wisdom philosophy. And, um, and when I talk about that, I think of, you know, the great religious teachers we have, like Jesus and Buddha and Lao Tzu and Confucius and, and people like that. And then you get into the philosophical realm, you know, Socrates, I think, was there and, and Plato to some extent. And just all these people of wisdom. And in some sense, I even put somebody like Nietzsche there and, and Aristotle and maybe a few others because they seem to have kind of a purpose to their history. They always, there seemed to be something going on, either evolution going on, either conscious, through consciousness or through the world. And so, so that was, so, so I began to see that there are threads between these wisdom teachers. Let, let me interrupt you for a second because we, we have limited time and yeah, we want to get into to certain areas, but so you, you go in this direction and, and, and then what, what I'm curious about is uh, how it goes, uh, at what point do you start looking at what's happening to the environment because your focus has very much been recently on climate change and, that, and you're seeing it not just in terms of, okay, uh, the, you know, we're using too much fossil fuel, but we're talking about the potential extinction of the great experiment with the experiment with the great white apes, us, you know, right. human beings, and that we might go off a cliff and it, it might be over. And, right. and uh, which is very, you know, dinosaurs disappeared and they were all around a lot longer than we were. So, th so that can happen. And you, what you're, you, you, when, what I've read about you and, and your first book was a new mythology is that uh, in order to really address this, our thinking, our thinking has to, to change. So we, we have about 20, 15, 20 minutes left in it, and I want to break it up in some segments. But if you okay. could uh, just address that, and then Phil had, had, had something you wanted to add to that. But go ahead. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I've always been politically involved off and on. I was always very much politically involved. I mean, that's maybe some of the reasons that the socialism course got into me. So we've, I've been involved politically. And I don't know how long ago, but, you know, as I got more familiar with the climate change thing, and, you know, if you're really – face it, it's like looking at death when you look at climate change, because it's the end. And, you know, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse now to the point where I think, you know, if I don't do something drastic in these next four years, probably, we're probably pretty much done. And I think for me, climate change is, is the message of the universe, you know, I call it the universe, is the message of the universe to change or you're going to die. We have to make this evolution in our thinking and see things from a, a, a new perspective, a new integrative perspective. Um, otherwise, we're, we're not going to make it, you know. Um, I don't know if I should go on or not. Or, well, but Bruce, you, you, in, in uh, what my understanding, um, one of the things you've studied is the uh, creation stories in different culture. And, and you say that... Um, their understanding of reality 
that different traditions have is rooted in, uh, or, or at least has origins in a certain creation story. And you're saying we need a new creation story. Um, exactly. And so I'm curious um, how that fits in with this picture of uh, evolutionary uh, stages of consciousness um, that um, you and other people um, have identified and how that fits in. Well, I'll, I'll add the other piece later, but yeah, well, what do you mean here, by the new creation yeah. story and what is needed? Well, as you said, I think in pre-modern times, back to indigenous cultures and before that, the creation story for any culture was the basis of their worldview because it told people, it, told, it connected people to the universe, to the big picture, to the whole creation of the universe. And through that, it gave them their purpose and told them who they are. It gave them a structure and a, you know, a set of values, something to live by. It told them they were connected to something much bigger than themselves. And so science came along in the, in the, you know, came along the scientific revolution and, you know, basically told us, well, yeah, those great stories are nice, but they're not really true. You know, we know they're not true. And here's the real story. And it's the Big Bang story. And basically the Big Bang story tells us that we're accidents of creation, that we shouldn't be here, and that the universe basically is meaningless and purposeless. It's just matter in a void. And so, you know, we don't have a creation story. We don't have any kind of unifying thing. And I would say on a subconscious level, that maybe really is our creation story. We don't feel this connection. We've lost this connection to, I guess, what we call the sacred. Um, and, and so we don't have this creation story to, to motivate us anymore. If anything, it tells us, you know, we're temporary, meaningless beings, which, you know, I think if you have that idea in your mind, you just want to, you might as well, well, if life's like that, I might as well just use up all the resources, have as much fun as I can now, because what difference does it make anyway? And so I think we need to reconnect to this deeper sacred part. So we need a new creation story, but this new creation story has to be a blend of the other two. So that's the blend of the create the, you know, the older creation stories that gave us meaning and purpose. But also, it's not like we want to get rid of the modern age because all that knowledge is something important and we want to hang on to it. So we need to blend that in with the old creation stories. Let, 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 me, let me ask you then, uh, Bruce, uh, for instance, in terms of the sacred side of it, we have the science, we have the sacred side. In, in our culture, much of that is the Judeo-Christian story as a mythology, myth or true story of what happened. And one of the uh, problems in terms of climate change that I see from that is uh, in that story, uh, the creator said, okay, this is the earth. These are the animals in the earth. They're here to serve mankind, personally, human beings. And, and I think that that's been uh, twisted and turned in such a way that uh, people feel uh, comfortable uh, taking advantage of abusing uh, those other living creatures and uh, entities and, and, and things that, that exist in the world. And that, that's one of the reasons we, we have the crisis of climate change that we have is because the myth or the story, the sacred story that went along with what we have now, our planet and our earth and our, our, our lives, uh, uh, did not respect the earth and everything else in it. Yeah, so I, I think what I say, what I take, I don't, I think the stories themselves, I mean, they came from so long ago, most of them, that 
I don't think we should take any of them literally. Maybe we should take them symbolically and figuratively, but I don't think we should take them literally. The only thing I really want to take from them is the fact that they did connect people to something, you know, and we've lost that connection that gave people meaning and purpose. And I think now we need a new creation story that embodies all the science, doesn't throw it out, but then brings in that meaning and purpose. And so my idea is this new creation story is basically underneath the whole thing is this inherent intelligence that is sort of unfolding itself. And in the new mythology, I sort of go through that by showing, at least my examples are, I go through what I call are like 26 miracles as on the evolutionary scale as we, as we go from matter to life to consciousness that it goes through and if you look at it, you know, with an open enough mind, like as a thing, as a, as a, as you know, as a, as for the first time, then you can sort of say, wow, that's really incredible. That happened, that happened, that happened. But most of the time, because you know, a lot of us may know that story. So we don't really pay any attention. Go, oh, well this happened, this happened, this happened. We don't look beneath the surface and say, you know, really, if you were, if you were an outside observer watching these things happen, you would have never believed these things could have happened like that. It would be a shock. I mean, so I think I show these 26 miracles to kind of show where I think there is this intelligence in the universe that's sort of guide, driving this thing, I guess. And it's not, it's different than um, intelligent design because in intelligent design, the notion of the God is somebody outside. It's a dualistic worldview where God sort of creates this thing. Whereas mine is, I think, a more of an Eastern Buddhist thing where the, where the, where the, the creation itself is the intelligence. The intelligence is in the creation. And it's sort of unfolding itself as it goes through the creation. So, you know, we are the latest examples of the universe's creation story. We are, we are, the, hum, we are the universe in the form of humans. You know, individually, I'm the universe in the form of Bruce. And you guys are the universe in the form of Dennis and uh, Phil. And so... You know, there is this deeper wisdom that the universe has used to maneuver its way up to us. And now that we've created this massive problem with climate change and so the other problems, you know, it's the, you know, some people say, well, why doesn't the universe solve that problem? And I say, well, because we created it. So now we have to tap into the universe's wisdom to find the answers to, to, to solve these problems. And... Um, and they're there and the universe can't do it without us because we created them. So it has to be a co-created type of thing. Uh, otherwise, you know, the universe, maybe it's got other experiments going on otherwise and they'll make it, but it's there if we want to tap into it. And there's this deep wisdom there. And I think that's what all the wisdom traditions are telling us from Jesus to Buddha, to all of these things. That's kind of. Bill. So Bruce, when, um, much of the uh, spiritual traditions of the world, uh, the the ancient ones and the uh, indigenous ones, uh, allude to or uh, worship or hold sacred some kind of intelligence that's guiding and structuring the universe. Some of them see it as outside of human uh, awareness. Some see consciousness as part of that evolutionary process and that the same uh, conscious, the same uh, intelligence that guides the uh, material, what we think of as the material world also uh, is the uh, human, the, the essence of human nature. Um, I, I know scientists who can, who look at creation uh, 
and would also call it a miracle. It's fascinating that you go through these different miracles in the history of the universe and and call what some people would just say were random events that science studies, and you are elevating them to the level of the miraculous. And I know scientists who would go there, but they would see religion or spirituality as something totally separate. Um, you're uh, proposing a kind of marriage of uh, traditional spiritual or religious uh, story is a myth with the scientific story. How do you make that happen when the number of people will who uh, can see that um, are relatively small in number? Well, or so it would seem. Yeah, no, I think, but I think, you know, anytime you have this kind of disruption we're having now, people get more open to new ideas. They're, they're willing to hear things. And I think as this climate change thing gets worse with the pandemic, which, you know, is, is, a, is a result of climate change too, and we're going to get more viruses coming, um, I think people are going to be more open to hearing this kind of thing. And, and, and really, we need to the big thing I think we have to do is take that longest journey, which I say is like from the head to the heart. And so in the modern world, we're in our heads. It's reason, it's intellect, it's rational and all that good stuff. And, you know, all that's important. But, but we left out the heart. We left out the feelings. We left out the passion, the connection, the intuition. And I think that needs to come back. And so I think that journey from the head to the heart is, is to we need to because the sense of the sacred is, is way beyond our minds. I mean, you know, if you can call it God, you can call it sacred, you can call it whatever you want, but it's way more than our minds can, can handle. We, intellectually, we can't understand it. It's something you have to experience. And I think, you know, it's what I experienced when I, and I experience now quite often, but it's what I experienced when I had my experience I mentioned in, in when I was in college. Um, you know, it's just like, it's it all, you have to feel it in here. And I think climate change, Nothing happens unless there's a reason to, and climate change to me is the reason. I almost think it's almost like an initiation experience that people have to go through. In some sense, we have to die to this old self. Speaking, you know, Jesus said this: we have to die to our old self to be reborn to a new self. So I think, you know, basically it's saying this ego that's running most of people's lives and creating so much of these problems. You know, we basically when cataclysms and terrible things happen, it strips down all of our preconceived notions that we've been living on for a long time. And when they get bad enough and people suffer enough, they start having, they start falling apart. Let, let me ask you, Bruce, do you think that this change in worldview is going to be happening spontaneously? Or are there things that you and others can do to bring about this change in worldview? Well, I mean, at least for me personally, I think just, you know, writing my book for me and, and being have a chance to explain express it here on your show is is part of it and doing more of that as much but, as but, I can. but in other words you people are listening in and they're thinking i'm I'm going to get the book I really buy into this this is what we need to do <clears throat> is it just spread by word of mouth how do you act uh, how would you uh, suggest uh, that that people uh, actually go about helping to bring about this change? Or is it something that's just going to happen one person at a time? Well, you know, I think it's at the point now where my idea is that you, people have to, first of all, they, you know, part of climate change isn't really the real problem. I think for most people, it's not climate change. 
It's they don't want to deal with it because they don't like all the thoughts and feelings and whatever that comes up, right. comes up when they think about it. all the fears and insecurities and what can I do and all this stuff. So they just, so they just go, I don't want to deal with it. And so I think climate change is like this initiation experience where we, we have to go through that. And when we go through that, we go through all of our crap, which is sort of what you do in initiation experience. And you break through and hopefully you break through enough that you can hit that deeper reality that connects everything. And so my idea is when you're, when you're at that deeper reality, that's when, that's where you find out who you are and what you should do. Then you're plugged into the universe. So I don't, I don't think anybody's purpose is somebody else tell somebody else what they should do. People have to take that journey and see for themselves what is their unique contribution. And I think the pressure of these times can force some people to do that. And maybe it can open up their the minds. And I think from my point of view, the magical universe, I think it gives people a more comfortable framework from which to look at climate change, to see it as, again, sort of part of this process. I mean, if you think about it, it's hard to think, I'm going to think about how could we not have been in this exact situation we are right now? And I think it's impossible. We have to be here because of who we are as human right. beings. It's right. like, Bruce, you, by the way, we have five minutes, Phil. You're going to yeah, wrap Bruce, it up with, you, with you, Bruce. Yeah. You tie in um, your uh, history of the universe, so to speak, and the mythologies that go with them with uh, certain understandings of the development of consciousness. And um, it looks very much uh, in sync with the kind of work Ken Wilbur and others have done in uh, describing uh, stages of consciousness, uh, archaic, magical, mythical, mental, postmodern integral is how you uh, describe them. So my understanding is this is not just a linear function of, you know, the history of human consciousness, but it's an ongoing one. So there are people in the world at all of these stages of consciousness. And if we're to believe the researchers, uh, very few are in the more advanced stages of consciousness uh, let alone the integral stage, which right. would seem to be necessary to uh, appreciate uh, the the full story you're trying to unfold. How would you propose lifting people from mythical and archaic stages of consciousness that resist, you know, all that you're calling for? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure archaic is sort of back at the animal level. Yeah. I think so. So you know, but you're right. I mean, there are. We're all different stages. There's a small percentage that's integral, and probably all, there's some people. I guess the the next one they call it. I don't know. They give colors to it. Yeah. Green or something postmodern. Um, and then there's a lot of people at the modern, and then I think a lot of them at the uh, mythical stage. And so you're right. There's all of these different stages, and you know they say. You don't need everybody to make a big change. You know, you don't even need half the people. You just need a significant majority, a significant number percentage. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, there's no guarantees it's going to happen. I just think right. we need a new worldview because people need to see things from a broader perspective, from an evolutionary perspective. And I think that's what can help trigger that change. But you're right. Some people are so far down the line. I mean, you think of, uh, QAnon people and some of these, I mean, you're not going to talk to them. You're not going to get them. I think it's right, right. your time to argue with that. So. But now, Bruce, 
or stories, mythology. No, we have two have minutes. To be, I got it. Yeah. These stories have to be uh, articulated and told and related, you know, around the campfire and in books. Do you articulate what you see as the new story that has to be uh, uh, appreciated and grasped? Um, yeah, I mean, I think as some people have talked about, you can take some of these, I think, you know, you could have rituals that tied into the new story that went through different important evolutionary stages. And uh, so I think you could bring it in as myth. Myth can become ritual and people can, you know, reenact it. You know, you talk, they used to, in the ancient times in Babylonia, they used to reenact their creation myth, you know, because they used to believe there was only 360 days a year. And in five days, they would sort of reenact their creation myth. And where um, uh, uh, Tiamat, who got beat by Marduk, the god king, defeated her, so so that imposed order. So for five days they had this disorder, like Tiamat's back. They have all this disorder. People can can um, do whatever they want. They lose their identities and everything. But then after five days, Marduk comes back. They reenact the big battle. Marduk wins. Order's restored. I mean, that kind of plugs them into their story. And, you know, it happens, I guess, on a yearly basis. And so, you know, something like that, that could get people to be aware of something bigger than themselves and, and see the universe. I mean, we're part of this 13.8 billion year story, and it's just about ready to come to an end. All that yeah. stuff, we're going to lose Jesus. Yeah, chapter. All that stuff. So, yeah. Okay, so... We'll look forward to uh, an articulation of this and further research on your part and others, because somehow it has to be tied into the prevailing uh, myths and stories that people uh, hold dear to them and uh, integrated into what we know from science. So we'll uh, refer everybody to your website uh, uh, and uh, your two books and will carry on from there. Okay, can I say one more thing? You know, Victor yes. Hugo said, there's nothing more powerful than an idea as time has come. I think this is the idea and this is the power. This is the thing that can change everything. So I think this is the idea. And when it gets out there and hits some kind of critical mass, I think it can go. I mean, it's just it's Great. just where it has to go. So. Sounds good, Bruce. Hey, thank you. Look thank forward you to for back being on the with show. us and uh, keep up the good work. We'll be in touch. Okay, thanks. Um, thanks for having me.